Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 345. Today's big Bible questions, and there are two of them. Number one, should Christians pay taxes? Number two, how can we pray according to God's will? Well, happy Lord's Day, friends. After today, there's only three more Sundays left in 2020, which is kind of crazy. Uh, even though it's been a wild and not the greatest year ever <laughs> by any means, it seems to have flown by quickly, at least for me. As I always do, broken record, I know, I'd like to invite you to join us online today at 11 a.m. at our Facebook page for our church, which is VBC Salinas. We begin as a church celebrating Advent this Sunday, and I will be teaching about how Jesus, the coming of Jesus, leads us away from fear. And all you got to do is go to Facebook, look up our webpage for our church, which is VBC Salinas, Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, and we will be live broadcasting at 11 a.m. And please say hi if you drop by in the comments so I can uh, say hi to you later on. We are reading Habakkuk 1 today and Luke 20 and 1 John 5, no first, uh, Second Chronicles passage for today because we went ahead and read it yesterday. Two fairly short questions for this episode, and one is more practical and one is more spiritual. Should Christians pay taxes? Is taxation theft? Well, today Jesus is going to give us a parable that actually doesn't completely answer either of those two questions, but we will also be checking out some other scripture in the Bible that does seem to answer those questions. Please do remember that the whole counsel of God on a particular subject isn't usually contained in one verse, so we look for other passages to build our understanding of God's truth. One caveat before we get going, there are some taxes that are burdensome and some taxes in tax situations that are just absolutely unjust and are plain wrong. We aren't talking about specific tax situations today, but more along the lines of the general question, can a government tax its people according to the Bible? Well, let's read our Luke passage and then discuss that question. Luke chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible one day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... All the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin, and Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time he sent a servant to the farmers so they might give him some fruit from the vineyard, but the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, Oh, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, That must never happen. 
But he looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everybody who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then he told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also, the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die, because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. Then he said to them, How can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. We should realize that this is a tough question to pose to Jesus. Either a yes or answer or a no answer here could be very divisive in two different ways in this current situation. The fact that he does not get a clear give a clear yes or no here indicates I think that there isn't a clear yes or no in every situation that this question is asked. Perhaps sometimes taxes are okay and sometimes not. Jesus' answer could certainly be seen as cagey here. In another passage, however, we do see Jesus paying a tax. Matthew 17, verse 24 says, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. When he went to the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. I love Peter's answer here. 
Does your teacher pay the temple tax? Uh, yes. Of course he pays the temple tax. But I kind of get the feeling that Peter really had no idea whether Jesus paid the temple tax or not. And then Jesus indicates at least he should be free from paying a temple tax. But nevertheless, he gives Peter a miraculous way to pay the tax for both of them regardless. Now, I'm not very sure this passage is extremely helpful in the overall taxes question because Jesus' answer here is a little ambiguous too. And also, this is like a temple sort of religious tax, which is not exactly the same as uh, most of the kind of taxes that most people in Western nations are faced with. But this is not the only place in the Bible that discusses taxes. In fact, the Bible mentions taxes or tax collectors in one context or another almost 50 times. But there's really only one of those passages, however, that is really decisively instructive as to our question, and it is found in Romans 13, which I think ranks as one of the most challenging passages in the Bible to some Christians. Romans 13, verse 5 says this, Therefore you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience, and the submit to the government is what's being said there, and for this reason you pay taxes since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. So it's worth remembering, uh, in addition to that command there, that Jesus was a friend to tax collectors. He was criticized for hanging out with tax collectors. He had a tax collector for a disciple and even told a parable where the Pharisee was the bad guy and the tax collector was the good guy. And John the Baptist's advice to tax collectors is also worth noting in Luke 3.13. He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Well, does the Bible require Christians to pay taxes then? I would say the answer appears to be yes, it does. Does the Bible also require governments to not be unjust or collect excess taxes? And I would say the answer to that question is also a big yes. Here's the million-dollar question. What should Christians do when government is taxing the people to excess? And how do we know when the government is taxing people to excess? Is 15% okay, but 16% not? Unfortunately, I don't see an answer to that question in the Bible that goes beyond groan and cry out to God for deliverance. Generally speaking, injustice on one party's part does not usually relieve the other party of an obligation to be obey God. But I also admit there is a time and place for a good old-fashioned dumping of the tea into the harbor. So generally speaking, I believe we should pay taxes. That's what Romans 13 says. Next question. How do we pray according to God's will? Well, our first John 5 passage is going to hit the question kind of square on the head. So let's go ahead and read it and then discuss. First John chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what God's love is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So the big question, how can we know what we ask is God's will? I hope you caught it in verse 14 and 15. John said, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So how can we know that we're asking according to God's will? Now, I'll be honest with you. This is a very tricky question because so many preachers, teachers, and quote, Christian writers have given some very unbiblical answers to this question. Some teachers will say, it is always God's will to heal you. Well, I find that absolutely factually and really provably wrong. And for evidence, I can point to the fact that no only human person mentioned in the Bible still walks the earth. They are all dead from our perspective, alive from God's perspective, but they're not on earth anymore and have stepped into eternal life. Was it God's will to heal them on the earth? Well, apparently not. For instance, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and yet a few years later, he died again. It was not God's will for Lazarus to live forever. Is Peter still alive? No, he's not. God rescued Peter several times, but even actually God told Peter that he was preparing to die. Apparently, Paul knew the same thing. It was not God's will to ultimately, it was not God's will to heal Paul right before he died or Peter. They both died. And the Bible says it is appointed for man to die once. So unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, all of us will taste death. And those saved by Jesus will taste glorious life abundantly immediately afterwards. Is it always God's will to bless somebody with wealth and riches? Well, the Bible says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And some of us might face that situation too. It is not always God's will to bless us the way we want to be blessed. Otherwise, Jesus would never have prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. How then do we know we're praying God's will? Well, Pastor John Piper gives the best answer to that question that I've ever heard. He says this, 
We can have undoubted faith if we know what God's will is in a particular situation. How can you keep from doubting if you don't know what God intends to do? How can anyone have assurance that the answer to his prayer will come to pass if he is not first assured that this is what God intends to do in response to his faith? There has to be a basis for faith. You can't just will to have no doubts if you're not sure that what you're asking for is what God intends to do. I have had the flu all week, says Pastor John Piper, but I have not been able to pray for healing with undoubting faith that it will happen. The reason is that I do not know the will of God in regard to my health. It may be that he intends for me to be sick for two weeks that I might learn to not rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead, which is a quote from 2 Corinthians 1.9. And since I don't know what God intends to do about my health, it is impossible to have complete confidence that he will heal me when I ask him. In such cases, we must always say with Jesus, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, Mark 14, 36. I hope with this teaching to alleviate a lot of unnecessary guilt, says Piper, how often we berate ourselves that we cannot ask for certain things with complete confidence that God will give them. But if we do not know that God intends to give them, how then can we have complete confidence that he will? Whenever we are forced to say, not my will, but yours be done, we are admitting that we have no certainty about whether our specific request will be granted. And there is no reason to feel guilty about that because faith that has no doubts is only possible where we know, at least in general, what God intends to do for us. The question that cries out to be answered, therefore, is how can we know what God wills to do in response to prayer so that we can ask him and trust him for it and know that it's coming? How can we find out what God intends to do in response to faith? There are two answers, says Piper. One is that God reveals much of what he intends to do through the word of God, the scripture. The other answer is that God can reveal his intention apart from scripture privately to an individual or group. What I mean by this second answer is that when scripture does not give a promise that a particular blessing will definitely be given in answer to prayer, God may make known in some other way that he intends to give that blessing. I mention this with some hesitancy, says Piper, because I've never in my life experienced it. God has never communicated to me what he intends to do any other way than by the scripture, but I think he could. So I will leave open this possibility of how we can find out what God aims to do in response to faith. I think that's a great answer. I think both of those are great answers. And I I would just say, we can pray with certainty that which God says he will do in the Bible. And there are times, I believe, and I would concur with Pastor John Piper, they are exceedingly rare, at least in my life, but there are times that God somehow, some way, will communicate or has communicated that he intends to answer a particular prayer. And when he does that, we can pray with faith, knowing that he will do it. But the vast majority of the time where we can pray according to God's will is because we have properly read and understood the promises of God in scripture. That's where we know we are standing on bedrock and God will answer that prayer, not according to our understanding or according to our wishes, but according to his promises in our word. Will the answer to those prayers sometimes surprise us? Yes, they will. Will they be in complete agreement with what he says in his word? You bet they will. You can stand on that with confidence. One more chapter for today, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? 
Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look at the nations and observe. Be us utterly astounded. This is God's answer. For I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like eagles, swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence. Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build sieges to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Habakkuk's second prayer. Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you were appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up, one who is more righteous than himself? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, capture them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food plentiful." Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Well, Lord have mercy. I suspect we will talk a little bit more about Habakkuk's prayer and questions to God and his answer tomorrow. Until then, my friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he guide you. May he protect you. May he demonstrate his great love and mercy to you. May he guide you to his word and through his word. Good day to you and Godspeed.